Well, it's great to be with you again this morning. Thank you so much for joining with us as we gather for our Sunday worship uh, once again. Uh, we're going to continue through our journey in First Peter. Uh, and as Jack said last week, I hope this has been an encouraging series for you. We've been challenged deeply, yes, by God's word as he's been uh, stretching us, but we've also been strongly encouraged too as uh, he's been showing us how we can stand firm for him in a world where sometimes we feel it's difficult to do so as followers of Jesus. Uh, and this morning we're going to unpack the first half of chapter 4 of First Peter, uh, where once again we see uh, a further development of what we read in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, those key pivotal verses. Um, and so today we're going to see a, a greater unpacking of these words, that we are to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, and instead we live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And from that moment... Uh, Peter, through God, uh, under God's guidance, has been writing, uh, explaining how that has actually worked out. And and as we examine these verses this morning from chapter 4, I think we're going to see more about, about one little phrase in the middle uh, of those verses from chapter 2. And uh, Did you spot that we're to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul? That, that's strong language, isn't it? That's language of war or battle. It might not sit comfortably with some of us in some ways. Uh, but for those who are seeking to follow Jesus and live our lives under his lordship and by his guidance, uh, we may well know exactly that sense and that language of warring and battling that often goes on as we seek to follow him. Uh, and that, that battle for us as we do seek to be faithful disciples of Jesus, it seems to be on two main fronts. Uh, like we see here in chapter 2, it's against your own soul. It's that internal battle, that private battle that we have. But there's also an element of that public external battle where we seek to live our lives following Jesus's ways in a world that may be hostile to him and his ways and that internal private uh, conflict to abstain from sinful desires to live such good lives um, is it's within our own hearts and our minds it's within and against our souls and many of us are, are acutely aware of the the daily if not hourly battle that is being waged within us as we're pulled in the opposite directions of, of God's Spirit seeking to lead us into greater holiness and further faithfulness as we follow Jesus. And then the sinful flesh which, which still rears its head and, and offers, offers a, a different path. And at times we feel that really strongly when we're confronted with the rising temptations of addictions or behaviours or attitudes that, that we know are very harmful for ourselves and for those around us. But other times that battle can seem more subtle when it's a, a choice of how we spend our time uh, and whether we just let autoplay start the next episode, for example, or, or maybe even with our finances and, and whether we should even consider what God would say about that particular purchase. And th those choices seem small and maybe even insignificant in ways, but they demonstrate the battle, however subtle, is still raging within us as we seek to follow God yet battle against our old sinful self. And the second battle, that, that external uh, battlefront is because we're called to be holy. We've seen this many times throughout this letter and other places, that our identity is as God's holy people. And this means that our outward lives, that external, that public life as followers of Jesus, it makes us distinctive, makes us different, because we're governed by a better set of values. Now, we're not, we're not perfect this side of eternity or this side of Jesus' return, and so we're not claiming to be able to live fully without sin, but we are constantly striving to follow and obey the good way of Jesus. And that often puts us at odds with the world around us. And we've talked about this, that in the letter we see this being taught through with the language of exiles or foreigners or strangers used without. 
but, but the end result is the same. That, that as we seek to live our lives, as we'll see today, for the will of God, rather than for evil human desires, then living that life can lead to suffering, can lead to ridicule, can lead to rejection from those around us. And so following Jesus means we're engaged in this battle, an inner private battle and an outer public battle. And our passage today, we're going to be thinking about that and how we are to stand firm in the midst of it. Uh, and so let's read together from chapter 4 of 1 Peter. We're going to read the first, verse, uh, the first 11 verses. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And we pray God's blessing on his word as we reflect on it now. And so as we do consider how to, how to stand firm in the midst of the tension within and the tension around us, I think this passage lays out that we do that by following and by fixing. That we follow, we stand firm by following the example of Jesus in verses 1 to 6. And we stand firm by fixing our eyes on Jesus in verses 7 to 11. We stand firm by following and by fixing. Uh, let's begin by thinking about what it means to follow the example of Jesus. Then look again at verse 1 with me. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body... And of course, with the therefore, it bridges the, the, to the end of chapter 3, where we saw Peter give an explanation of the suffering that Christ went through. In verse 18, we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ suffered. Peter has explained that in chapter 3. And now, therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, he's going to give uh, some teaching to us. But, but before we move on from that, let's just consider Christ's suffering. And his suffering was for a great and glorious purpose. His suffering was for salvation. To, to pay the price for sin. So that, that we who are unrighteous might be made righteous through his sacrifice. You see Christ was willing to submit himself to his father's will. Because he knew his father's will was the best way. Even if that meant personal suffering for him himself. And that's the example that I think Peter is highlighting, which then leads him on to say through the rest of verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves with all, also with the same attitude. In other words, we, we follow the example of Jesus when we submit ourselves to God's will above our own. And that might mean suffering. In fact, that will mean suffering in light of these verses. But we can do that because we're armed with the confidence that God's will, God's ways are best. <laughs> 
that he is the ultimate victor in this fight and so that attitude breeds confidence and courage in our battles as we arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ willing to submit our own will to God's because we know that his ways are always best and I love that term arm yourselves it's so purposeful it's so active isn't it it, to be armed is to, to be prepared, to be focused, to plan, to dedicate yourself, to be armed for that fight. It's not some kind of passive submission to God's will, but rather it's a conscious, decisive, active choice to ready yourselves with the attitude, to consciously submit ourselves to God's will and way, knowing that he is best. Arm yourselves also. And verse 1 and 2 continue, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly life with uh, lives with for human desires, but rather for the will of God. And this is an interesting statement, I think, that, that speaks to us of the, the battle that we talked about at the start, both that private and public sphere of that battle. You, you see, as we stand firm by following Jesus, our lives are, are marked by his righteousness remember back in chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10 our identity as his followers is completely transformed let's read those verses again you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light once you were not a people but now you are the people of God once you had not received mercy now you have received mercy we have received mercy We've been called from darkness to light and so we are God's holy nation. Our lives are marked by his holiness in response to the wondrous grace that he's shown. But even with that glorious truth, our sinful desires continue to wage war against us. We're clothed in his righteousness, yes, but until he comes or until he calls us home, we live surrounded by and, and, and tempted by sin and our old sinful desires. So being done with sin here in verse 1 isn't, isn't suggesting that we live sinlessly as we said earlier. But it does show that followers of Jesus desire to follow him more than the desire to follow sin. Sin no longer has control. And that line of thinking takes us towards Romans 6. And let's just pick up a couple of verses, verses 11, 12 and 13, where so many of those same themes are, are repeated. In the same way, Paul writing here, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life to offer part, any part, every part of your body to him as an instrument of righteousness. You see, we're to count ourselves dead to sin, done with sin and alive in Christ. But the battle with sin continues. And indeed, that from verse 1, the reality of that battle, I think, actually shows a sign of Christ's life within you. you see, when verse 1 says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. See, what I mean by this is the reality of the battle with sin shows a desire to go a better way. Jesus' way. And so could it be that if we're not experiencing any kind of tension or battle with sin, either internally or as we seek to live a holy life externally, could it be that we're actually not trying to fight sin? And therefore, we're being carried along by it or in it. One commentator puts it this way, joining in, in this painful struggle, that struggle against sin, is part of the proof of following Jesus Christ to glory. 
And so if you're finding yourself in moments of battling temptation or sin, take heart in that fight. Dig in. Arm yourselves with that attitude that Christ had, that suffering is always worth it because God's ways are always best. But also in in a paradoxical way, be thankful for the fight. See, the fight actually shows that you're seeking to live the way of Jesus more faithfully. That you're indeed living this earthly life not for the will of God, but and against, sorry, you're living your life for the will of God and against those evil human desires. Moving on through this passage, we get to verse 3 and 4, and Peter shows us what life before Jesus was like, and therefore the transformation that following Jesus brings to our lives. But he explains that with that transformation comes rejection, may come rejection and condemnation for those who are still involved in the things that we've left behind. Verse 3 and 4. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. Now now you may look at this list and and depending on your background or experience, you may not see a list of sins that directly correlates with your life. But, But that's not the point of this list. The point here is not about notching up the most dramatic sins. The point is that by before we came to, to accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness, we were, according to Ephesians 2-3, we were all by nature deserving of wrath before we met Jesus. You see, in other words, our lives were not marked by a pursuit of holiness and righteousness. But now, as we've been called from darkness to life, then our lives should show a noticeable change in priority and behaviour. And that change will get the attention of those who we used to hang around with, who knew us before we met Jesus. Maybe they notice a change in our language. Maybe it's our our understanding and our use of money. Maybe it's how we treat those in need. Maybe it's the level of consumption of alcohol we do. Maybe it's what we choose to do with our spare time. Or a mountain of other things and other ways in which our outward life demonstrates the change of heart that has gone on inwardly as a result of grace. See, when we read the phrase in verse 2 that we would live for the will of God, that, 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 that is the danger of sounding high and mighty, maybe a bit unattainable. But as we read on through and as we see in light of all of Scripture, living for the will of God should have tangible, noticeable changes in our lives. Living for the will of God should be visible to the world around us as we live outwardly the transformation by grace that is taking place inwardly. But of course not all of these changes that have gone on in our priorities and in our behaviours will be appreciated by everyone. Uh, And in fact living a life of holiness may actually bring abuse. NIV says heap abuse. ESV talks about those who malign you. Uh, And it even goes in in verse 4 to say that some of those are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living. The inference being that we used to. Uh, and this abuse, this heaping of abuse can be incredibly difficult, especially when that abuse comes from those that we know and love deeply. Uh, or even from, from wider society where we, we sense a general disdain or, or even outright aggression against those who are seeking to follow the way of Jesus. So in the midst of that, in the midst of that abuse, how are we to respond? Well, verse 5 continues, But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, we, as well as those who malign us, we and they, have to give an account to the sovereign judge over all the earth. We will be accountable to him, as are those who are against him and his people. 
and I suppose there's an elephant, an element of comfort in that, that that enemies of God will see true justice in the end. But but there's also a sense in which this reality should shape our attitude as we engage with those who are heaping abuse. See, we we know what this judgment will mean for them, and for all who pass into eternity without knowing Christ as their saviour. And so this should lead us to, to a great level of compassion and care for their souls, even in the midst of them heaping abuse. And of course, that, that I'm not saying that we don't engage or, or take a stand for God's truth and God's ways, or we don't engage in healthy and constructive and robust debate. But we do so with the desire to win people to Christ, not simply to win the argument. See, Christ implored us in Matthew 5, 44, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And, and my goodness, I, I realise that that's easy to say and very difficult to put into practice when you're in the midst of it. But such is the way of Jesus. Remember, so much of the teaching of Peter, 1 Peter so far, we live under the rule of this holy and just king. And therefore, as exiles in a foreign land, away from our eternal home, we live in that tension of being his ambassadors in a world that is often hostile to him. And in the midst of that hostility, we continue to stand firm by following the example of Jesus. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. And this eternal perspective uh, is continued and highlighted again through verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. And I think Peter here is is seeking to give some comfort to the first hearers who, who are likely to have known some fellow believers who have died, maybe even as a result of the persecution that they've been facing. And the comfort is that this life is not all there is to be focused on. You see, all of us, regardless of whether we believe or not, we will be uh, judged according to human standards in regards to the body, in, in that we will all, our earthly lives will come to an end. We will all face death. Yet, for those who believe, for those who have been received the gospel that was preached, they know that they live on now by the Spirit with God in glory. And that eternal perspective helps to fuel our following of Jesus' example. That even though we suffer, and even though that suffering will come, we live for the will of God. And we do all of that because the inheritance that awaits us. Remember verse, uh, back to chapter 1, that inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade. That awaits us in eternity. And so a lifetime of, of potential suffering now will be well worth it for the glory that awaits. And the praise that is due his name. So that eternal perspective is key for us to carry on as we seek to stand firm and as we follow the example of Jesus. And so as we seek to live out this reality of abstaining from sin, of living good lives, even in the midst of suffering, we firstly follow the example of Jesus. We actively seek to be done with sin, to live lives for God's will, to persevere through mocking and scorn and even of those who heap abuse, knowing that our true home awaits us with him. So we follow the example of Jesus. The second main thing that we see through the rest of this passage from verse 7 to 11 is that we stand firm by fixing our eyes on Jesus. And these five verses help to flesh out what that actually means and how we can do that. So fixing our eyes on Jesus, again, it's not some pie in the sky statement, but rather it can be or should be our posture as we seek to stand firm for him. 
And I think in these five verses we see three things of how we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus because eternity is near. We fix our eyes on Jesus by serving one another. And we fix our eyes on Jesus giving him all the glory. So verse 7. We fix our eyes on Jesus because eternity is near. Verse 7 begins, the end of all things is near. And in the midst of suffering for following Jesus, of, of facing persecution and ridicule, how important it is to remember what we've mentioned already, that this life is not all there is, that this is not our true and lasting home. The end is coming. Jesus will return in all his splendor and majesty and authority and glory. And whether that happens in our lifetime or in the next hundred years or a thousand years is not for us to know. The point is we are to live in the urgency that it could be today. It could be tomorrow. And so live with our eyes fixed on him because ultimately he is our prize. He is our motivation. He is our example. The end of all things is near. And in light of that perspective, verse 7 continues, Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. You might remember a similar phrase from chapter 1 verse 13. Be alert and of clear mind or of sober mind. The end is near so be ready. It reminds me actually of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus goes on, with, uh, goes on into the garden to pray and he asks his disciples to wait and pray with him and he comes back after his earnest praying and finds them sleeping. And he says, will you not stay awake and pray with me more? Be alert, be of sober mind, the end is near. Reminds me also of Ephesians 5, 15, 16. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Make the most of opportunities that God puts in front of you for his kingdom, even though and because the days are evil. And we can only make the most of opportunities if we're alert and clear-minded enough to see the opportunities. If we're, we're consciously attentive to what God is doing in us and in his world and calling us to, the, to take the opportunities that he puts in front of us. So the end is near. So be alert and of sober mind. And we do so, so that we may pray. And this may initially sound like an odd way to end that sentence, but perhaps this helps us to, to appreciate a healthy sense of the urgency that we're called to. That, that being alert, that knowing that the end is near, it could drive us to either extreme. It could drive us to panic, to wonder what that end will be like, maybe even to be consumed by how that's going to come and when that's going to come. Or it could lead us to the opposite extreme of the end is near, so why should I bother trying? But neither of those are right. The end is near, so pray. Be sober-minded and pray. Be so clear in your mind and focused with your eyes on Jesus that we pray. Pray in the midst of persecution. Pray in the midst of, of, of fear. Pray in, in, because there are many around us who need to hear the good news of Jesus. So pray. So, so this is the first way in which we fix our eyes on Jesus. We realize the end is near. And therefore we dive deeply into him. We depend on him. We trust on him. We think clearly with sober minds. We set our hearts and our minds on him. Secondly, we, we fix our eyes on Jesus by serving one another. Serving each other. And I love this section from verse 8 and 11. Especially in the context of what's being discussed. In, in the middle of persecution. In the middle of awaiting. Uh, and because we await Jesus' coming in all of his glory. Here are commands. To continue to help and encourage and support one another. And can you imagine the importance of that Christian community in the context that Peter was writing into initially? Knowing that you're not alone. 
knowing that in the middle of persecution you have shoulders to cry on, you have arms to hold you up, to spur one another on, to keep the faith, to stand firm. What a gift God gave to his people in the first century as they faced this persecution, that gift of one another. But of course that gift isn't just for the first century. Throughout the centuries God has given the gift of each other to his people and that continues today. See, we may not be facing the the kind of direct persecution that we often think of when we read these words or even that we'll hear about next week. But that doesn't in any way reduce the need that we have for one another or the appreciation we should have of one another. Look at the the start of verse 8. Knowing that the end is near, knowing that eternity is ringing in our ears, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, love each other. That's the command. You see, God knows how vulnerable we are when we get on our own. He knows that he created us to be family together. He also knows how easy it is for niggles and gripes to break in and destroy healthy Christian community. And so he encourages us to stand firm, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And he knows that by in, in doing that, we will need one another. So he commands us to love and to love deeply. And then there are a few examples of how that love works itself out. In verse 9, show hospitality. And show hospitality without grumbling. Now in general, in, in Northern Ireland, as well as here at Gilnark, we love showing hospitality. But even the most hospitable of us may do so with a sense of grumbling. There's always a lot of work to prep the house and a lot of clearing up to be done after. And I realise there are other ways to show hospitality than just having people in your home. Particularly in this era of COVID, we need to be very creative as to how we show hospitality to one another. But the point is the same. The command is the same. Be hospitable and do so without grumbling. See, God has given us the gift of one another. And what hospitality enables us is an opportunity to deepen our love for one another by spending quality, meaningful, sacrificial, biblical time together. So show hospitality as you love, show hospitality and do so without grumbling. The second way in which we serve one another is by uh, is by what we see in verse 10 and 11, that we the, the focus widens out, that we recognise that all of us have the opportunity to serve. Um, and we do so in many different ways, in the ways that God has equipped us to. Look at verse 10 to see the attitude that we should have as we do that. Each of you, verse 10, should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. See, what I find and what I love about this is there's, there's no question that we have all received gifts that, are, that enable us to serve. The command is to use whatever gift you have received. It's not if you have received your gift, then use it. No, no, no. The start of verse 10 is each of you should use whatever gift you have. All of us as brothers and sisters together as the body of Christ have been gifted with various forms of God's grace. And therefore we have the responsibility to steward those gifts. Those gifts weren't given to be hoarded or to be kept private, but to be stewarded and stewarded faithfully in service of one another. But maybe some of us ask, well, what are those gifts? Or, or how do I find out what my gift is? Well, there's not an exhaustive list here. And I'm not sure we should spend a huge amount of time searching through Scripture for an exhaustive list. There are plenty of examples throughout, particularly the New Testament letters, of the gifts that are given of how we serve. But the point is not to find your one particular niche. The point is to use what you have where you are and how God has given you and gifted you now. So use just what you have, use where you are to serve one another and to do it now. 
And as you serve, notice where your strength and your motivation comes from. This is why we can do it now. This is why we can be confident. If anyone serves, they should do so in the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. You see, God equips with the gifts to serve. He then gives the strength to serve. And all of that is so that his glory is served. God equips us with the gifts to serve. He gives us the strength to serve so that his glory is served by our service. So as we serve one another, let's be conscious that it is God we're serving with the gifts that he has graciously provided in the strength that he continues to pour out. So there we have a couple of examples. We stand firm by fixing our eyes on Jesus, knowing eternity is near and knowing that we can serve one another. Uh, And the final point then that we'll mention is that we've already talked about from verse 11, is that we fix our eyes on Jesus by giving God the praise in all things. And this picks up on something Jack referred to last week and that we talked about in life groups during the week, that that one of the ways in which we learn to revere Christ as Lord is by worshipping him and worshipping him in our every single moment of our days. That even in the mundane, we go around intentionally looking for his hand at work. And so maybe that's as you go into the office, uh, you intentionally try to see God's creative hand in the people that you work with or that maybe you sit on a Microsoft Teams meeting with. Maybe you ask for his help with that classmate who's rubbing you up the wrong way and therefore invite him into that difficult situation. Maybe as you're walking into a a tense conversation with a family member, you intentionally bring that before God, asking him to be very present with you in that time. You see, we want to live in a way that shows that in all things, God may be praised. And for that to happen, we need to be actively aware of his presence with us in all things so that we can then give him the praise that he so rightly deserves. And perhaps this is summed up well for us in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And maybe that would be helpful to a helpful verse to stick along the top of your computer monitor or, or set as the background of your, your mobile phone or hang it from a piece of string tied to your house keys. Whatever it is and however many creative ways we can do this, there's good things that we can do to positively remind ourselves of God's presence with us throughout our every day. And not only remind ourselves of his presence with us, but in doing so we're reminding ourselves that he has placed us there to give him praise. Through our words, through our actions, through our attitudes, he is with us so that he is praised in all things. And however we raise our awareness of his presence with us, as we do that, it'll help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And therefore that will strengthen our resolve to stand firm in those moments where we find ourselves. And so there's been a lot in these verses, I realise that. But in these verses, I think, hopefully... What has been clear is that we can see that God is once again calling us to stand firm. And he's clearly showing us that in doing so will be difficult because this is not our home. We are not at home in this world. And so living for him will often lead to conflict with this world and even with ourselves. But in those times, as in all times, we are to stand firm for him. And and to do that in these verses, I hope we've seen at least two ways in which we can do that. We stand firm for Jesus by following the example of Jesus. And secondly, we stand firm by fixing our eyes on him. 
And so as you head into this week, whatever God may have in store for you in it, let's pray that we would all follow and fix. That we would follow the example of Jesus in, in suffering for faithfully living for the will of God. And also that we would fix our eyes on him, knowing that eternity is near, knowing that we have the gift of one another as we stand firm. And therefore we live with the intention of giving God all the glory that he deserves. Glory for what he has done, glory for what he continues to do, glory for what he has promised will do in the future. Let's continue to give God all the praise that he alone deserves. Amen.